Book Maracena As Read by Green-Eyed Music Lover Part 3 Heresiology A woman lives alone in the forest hills above the Feather Barrens, north of her, in a chaos of ravines and clear but fiercely radioactive streams, the hills surrender to high imperial mountains engaged in brutal seismic warfare. For the distributary is a young world, and has not settled its grudges. To the south are the dry lands where the birds of the forest, especially the parrots, go to die. She lives here because one day she will no longer be immortal and she wants to observe the dignity of death. Up these hills comes a man and his mother. The man moves with practice wariness, but his mother is tired of walking, so she sits down on a giant melon and bellows. Mara! A fountain of startled birds shoots up into the dawn light. Not far away, the woman looks up from the broken body of a juvenile gray parrot and softly says, Mom? That night, over the fire, after Mara and Osana talk about the oddness of long separation, Mara, tending the pheasants on their spits, says, Brother, your eagle killed a parrot today. He had to hunt, Aldrin says carefully. You won't forbid him his last pleasures, will you? You've brought him here to die? Mara wants to leap up and hug her brother, out of pity and respect. Many of his raptors have died before this one, but Aldrin has always been grief-stricken and furious at the waste. Now he's accepted what must happen. He has given his bird the respect of choosing its own place in time to pass. I have, Aldrin says, looking away. Her pride and respect make him a little verklempt. Mother decided she would come along. A sheer force as powerful as tectonics has divided Mara's heart. She wants to sit down with her mother and ask her everything. But she is afraid of Osana's insight. What brings you to my little camp, mother? Lies, Osana says. Lies and secrets. And the girl who didn't want to be my daughter, who doesn't know the difference between them. I know the difference between a girl and a daughter, Mara says, purposefully misunderstanding. The drip pan sizzles beneath the golden meat. Her stomach growls. Your daughter picks up your baton at the end of the race and goes on living the life you taught her. You wouldn't want that, mother, because then I'd be all your fault. That's true, Osana sighs. But you know what I meant. Aldrin looks between the two of them, frowning. Mom, what's this? It's your sister about to admit she's behind it all, aren't you, Mara? She unimpales the pheasants from the spits and neatly licks hot grease off her hands. If she spoke, she might scream in terror. What does that mean, behind it all? Does Osana know? The Echoliest are her creation. Her mother tells her brother. The diasrim was her pawn. She allowed the theodicy war because she was afraid we'd be too comfortable here. Also so, Queen Elise would need her help politically. 
Mara couldn't afford to be the most radical dissident. She had to seem moderate for her beliefs to thrive. Isn't that right, Mara? Mara put a hand into the warm soil to keep herself from slumping in relief. Mother doesn't know it all. Shall I carve your portions? She asked, holding the fractal knife blade down. Aldrin has that look. He knows Mara never answers his questions directly. By evading Osana's, it's as if she's saying that the question is really Aldrin's to ask. Looks delicious. But Mother does make me curious. Why have you always lived away from the rest of us, Mara? The mountaintop, I understood. You had a brand new night sky to chart. But why now? Why go into the woods like a... a hermit? A heretic? For the same reason she lived on the hall. For the same reason she could never allow Aldrin to really reach her. There is power in remove and safety from the belittling politics of temporal power, which reveal the mighty as unforgivably ordinary and petty. The Awoken have a queen because a queen can be a mystery. I remember the day I was born, she says. Do you, brother? He flinches from her eyes. He remembers Yang Liwei and the tether into darkness, he remembers how gravity stretched them into agonized ribbons of flesh. He remembers the truth not even Elise Lee may be allowed to know. Mara sees the agonizing moment, the cyclic revelation, when he thinks of her crime, allows it to pierce him like a spit and buries it deep again. Osana takes her portion of pheasant meat and rolls it in the bowl of sweet-cooked nuts her daughter has prepared. The stars are coming out over the mountains, and the forest birds sing. This place is good, she says. This world, whatever you remember of our lives before, Mara, I know they cannot have been this good. No, Mara says. But you were both with me. I hope you always will be. Always, her brother promises. Eat well. Mara clasps her hands and stands. Tomorrow we journey. Where? Her mother asks. I have star charts to share. And heresies to tend to. And a new eagle crow to find for her bereft brother. Impenit One In later days, the power of the queen waned and the distributary was ruled by scholars who sent their knights on mad quests to test the consistence of reality. These were the Jinsim scribes who traced their origin to Keldovaj, the all-teacher, but who were in fact descendants of a band of roving storytellers who traveled across the immense salt glades in a hollering convoy of airboats. Here was their praise of the world. It is sweet-watered, and there are no poisons upon it. The temper, the climate is even. Great, broad-pawed cats stalk the shallow glades, and brilliant blue flamingos promenade upon the flats. The air is thick and warm, suited for flight, and the wind tastes of forest. 
No dawn has ever been as glorious as the salt glade dawn, and no dusk has ever moved women to weep as deeply as sunset in the Creciades. Corsairs sport upon open seas, and where they waylay freighters rather than each other, they give rumor and assistance to their prey in proportion to the quality of the chase. Beloved are the stories of young lads and lasses who leap across to the Corsair ship for a life of adventure. Beloved also are the terrace farms of the Andaleas, mountains so mighty and so dense with radioactives that they subside year by year into the crust. Most beloved are the fissioners who vaulted us to power on a world without petrochemicals. May they forgive the many stories of horror we have told in their memory. May they, in particular, forgive the lurid stories of the molten lead reactor and the twelve who were impaled to the ceiling by their control rods and the core that stopped. It is the sanguine truth that we were granted this world by the unconditional mercy of the powers and that we will never again know fear. However, the scribes also recorded their frustration with Mara and Aldrin, who alone out of the 891 were said to have seen creation from outside. These two wandered the lands, gathering lore of portents and prophecies, and all the Echeleists who remained from ancient days whispered that soon the day of reckoning would be known. The day when the Awoken would be called to repay their debt. Now, in the court of one of the scribes, there appeared a woman of stellar height and furious wrath, armed with a bow that could be strung only if she twined it around her body and used her whole mass to bend it. I am sure, Ido, said the woman, and I accuse Mara of the ancient murder of my lady, the Diasrim. In my saddle, I have a weapon with only one death remaining. Take me to Mara, and I will deliver it. The scribes consulted and said to each other that this foul murder might prevent another theodicy war. So they gave Sior Ido all their knowledge to hunt Mara. Impenent 2 Carefully, the people of the distributary grew in number. Joyously and constantly, they grew in quality. Those who do not die are as malleable and passionate as the young, as tempered and constant as the mature, and as wise and humble as the best of the old. But as ever, the Awoken were troubled by death. It was easy to imagine a world older and harsher than the distributary, a world crowded with competitors where the slow-changing and lushly alive Awoken would be helpless beside austere mayfly quick-breeders who adapted with every swift generation. Why have the Awoken been spared mortality? Were they, as the Sanguine preached, rewarded for their bravery and fidelity in a past existence? Or were the Echeleists right? Could all the gifts of the distributary, all the milk-bright stars above all the years of Awoken life, be a form of cowardice? Was there an unfought battle down in the center of the Awoken soul? A duty yet to be discharged? Queen Nuya Pen restored the monarchy to prominence over the Jinsum scribes. This she accomplished after a fateful visit upon the day of the summer solstice by a hooded and masked woman who some whispered was Marasov, and others, 
the long-vanished diastrem. For nine and ninety years, a rhetorical figure meaning a long time, the queen had been an authority only in the arts and matters spiritual. However, Queen Nuya Pin declared she was now an avowed echoliest, and that the queen would lead the quest to identify whatever debt the Awoken owed the cosmos. It was time to pursue a dream beloved to all Awoken, the conquest of space and the assessment of the true shape and age of their universe. The ancient court of the queen gave the Jinsum scribes a place to lay down their pride and act as equals. Soon, the greatest engineers in the world assembled in the queen's court, and whatever wealth or resources they required flowed freely. Great cataracts of men and women spilled around the palace, screaming of ramjets and apoapsis deep into the night. Then, awakening to pots of thick black coffee to mumble about metric tensors and cosmic microwave anisotropy. Into this feast of ideas came Shur Ido, searching for the woman who had turned Queen Pin to Echoliasm. Shur smoldered with an ancient fury, for another thing that the immortal may nurture is everlasting vendetta. Shur Ido deduced who among the queen's court must be a disguised Marasov. She followed the hooded figure to her laboratory and watched Mara go to work, soldering a makeshift bolometer to search for signs of primordial gravity waves. Shur Ido's fury and grief wetted themselves against Mara's thoughtless grace and ancient beauty, until at last her heart unseamed itself and spilled its hot blood in a shout. Marasov, she cried, throwing down her Maltech matter laser between them. I cannot live while you live, but I cannot bear to kill you. I challenge you to a duel to the agony. I will fight your most beloved companion to the death and leave you forever maimed or else die in the attempt. Mara could not refuse this challenge. She summoned Aldrin and with a ruthlessness she was no longer frightened to wield, she told Aldrin that he would stand for her in battle to the death against Shuraido. We cannot put it all upon a single fight, Aldrin said to the ancient vendetta bearer. Too much would be left to chance. Such an old grudge deserves to be tested well. I propose we fight with blade, with rifle, and with fifth-generation air superiority fighters. Sir Ido accepted these terms. Impotent Three Now it came to pass that Isilla, daughter of Scylla, recognized the scent of Jor Ido, for smell lies deepest in memory. Asilla spoke to Queen Nuya Pin about the presence of an ancient hero in her court. While Queen Pin pondered how to honor this visitor, and simmered over the insult of Jor's unannounced presence, a spy brought word of Jor Ido's intentions to the Jensen scribes. The many scribes were troubled by this news, for they had given Jor Ido license to hunt and kill Marasov. If Jor Ido murdered a guest of the queen under the scribe's remit, it would mean war and the end of the Great Awoken push for space. 
Historians were called to the court with bouquets of sweet flowers and grant money to speak of Shuraido. She was one of Queen Elise Lee's paladins, but she was an Echeliast who believed that we would one day be called to repay the gift of our awakening. Would she defy the queen's protection and murder a guest of the court? The scribes asked. <laughs> oh, absolutely, the historian said laughing. She was a terror. The scribes began preparations to flee the queen's court, as they foresaw Shuraido's victory would be blamed on them. Sensing uncertainty, many vital contractors and suppliers withdrew from the space program. The queen denounced the Jensen scribes as faithless and selfish, and her Echelius followers bristled in rage against the sanguine majority who had scuttled their dream of flight. Household turned against household, sister against brother, wife against wife. The whole world clenched her fist. Meanwhile, Jur Ido and Aldrin met each other on a net of woven lianas over a pool of heavy water. The light of the queen's retractors shimmered beneath them as they took their places. Aldrin wore a white chest piece of ceramic armor over a suit of black tasseled silk, and he wielded a long fractal knife whose cutting edge was nearly three times as long as the blade. Jur Ido fought in the contoured blue-gray pressure armor of a paladin, with a star of eight edicts blazoned on her chest. Before they began, Jur Ido tore away the sheer curtain over the gardener's nook and looked in on Marasov. Are you afraid? She whispered, half in hatred, half in admiration, all in awe. Do you sweat? Does your breath come short? Mara pressed her hand to Jur's faceplate and left no stain. She held Jor's gauntlet to her heart so Jor could feel her steady pulse and even breath. You don't care about him. Jor pressed her. It would mean nothing if I maimed him. You ask the right questions, Mara said, but of the wrong sibling. Then Shur understood that she fought a man who would always express his love through loss and ordeal. She bowed to Aldrin and drew her knife. Aldrin bowed in mocking reply. They fought across the web of lianas in a slow spiral, creeping like spiders, waiting for the motion of the web beneath them to signal an instant of vulnerability. Then the pounce, the clash. The blur of knives. Jor Ido's straightforward prison yard jabs against Aldrin's whirling deceptive theater. All of knife fighting is the seizure and surrender of space. Neither would surrender to the close, the clench, the berserk adrenaline sick exchange of thrust that would leave them both dead. Aldrin began to cut away key lianas to throw Jor Ido's footing. And Shuraido countered by charging him to keep him off balance. At last, they fell together into the coolant pond. The fight was a draw, but it was only the first of three. Impenit 4 
Next, the fallen paladin and the hunter chose long guns and went out into the monsoon jungle to stalk each other. Jor Ido selected a tiger spite in 11 by 99 millimeter with five round flock guidance and an inertial sump. Aldrin chose a silent needle carbine with a cone snail payload. For six weeks, they stalked each other as the political situation grew more dire. He was the better hunter, stealthier in motion and at ease in the wilderness. The Chur Ido was a better soldier. She had no respect for the systems of the jungle, and she knew how to use that to her advantage. She drove the animals into a frenzy with violence and habitat disruption. Parrots and crows warned each other of Aldrin's stealthy hides, and jealous predators forced him off his carefully scouted trails. Sure, Ido caught him with his back against a rift lake and shot him as he tried to cross the lake bed. The wound was not mortal, for the water ruined the terminal ballistics, but she had won the match. Your life is at stake, Mara warned her brother. Lose this final match, and you will... And by that symbol, he snarled at her. The wound pained him terribly, but he would not risk more than a little analgesic. Leave me to my work, sister, or you leave me nothing at all. Now they would meet in air superiority fighters over the Andalias. Charges under their seats would detonate if either of them left the engagement area. Because of the small combat zone, Jur Ido chose a nimble ermine tactical fighter and a payload of all-aspect heat-seeking missiles. Where will we receive these aircraft? Aldrin demanded. How can I trust the equipment? Jur Ido told him that one of the Jinsum scribes would provide the aircraft and requested weapons from her personal deterrent stockpile. Very well, Aldrin sniffed. And we will have access to all the weapons these airframes can equip? Of course, Shur said. Those we cannot obtain can be replaced by training simulators. She was certain Aldrin's wound would cripple him. Then I will fly a dart, Aldrin said. The ancient interceptor had awful fire control, dismal maneuverability, and primitive weapons. A dart? Sure jeered. Will you fly with its original weapons too? You think you can beat me with rockets and a gun? I do, Aldrin purred. You accept these terms? She did. The two duelists took to the skies on a bright winter morning. After a fuel check, a telemetry squawk, and a terrain snapshot, they turned in toward each other from a hundred kilometers apart. Jur Ido descended for the terrain, knowing Aldrin's radar could barely separate her from the clutter. Aldrin came straight on. At 80 kilometers of separation, Aldrin called across the radio. Box 3, kill. Engagement over. Jur sneered at the bluff and prepared to climb into a snap attack when the Killed, alert, flashed on her ermine training panel. She had forgotten that the darts intercept loadout, when it had last served 70 years ago, included an unguided air-to-air nuclear rocket. Aldrin had simulation killed her and everything. 
within several clicks. On the tarmac, Jur Ido threw off her helmet and parachute and knelt before Marasov. My lady, she said, as I have fought your brother to a tie, I leave my fate in your hands. Be more kind to me than you were to my lady, the diastrum. Rise, Juraido, said Mara. Let us take the stars together. Impenent 5 The subsonic roar of the solid rocket boosters crosses the threshold from noise into motion. To hear it is to feel it, and to feel it is to remember that you are a sack of fluids and gels much more than you are a solid entity. Membranes and gradients, salutes and films, a body is a mingled thing. Mara thinks of this as she watches the launch vehicle discard its boosters and climb away through the clouds. The Awoken could have been angels. Instead, they are flesh. That's that. Queen Nuya Pin rises from her portable throne, unfolding two heads taller than Mara. Choose your replacement. My work is done, and I will stomach no more. Mara smiles at her. Is a queen's work ever done? Oh, don't insult me, Queen Pin clucks. She brushes windblown pollen from her trousers. Today's launches have blasted the spring trees with hot wind. You used me to do your work, politically and scientifically. You used me to bundle up the scribes in a neat little scroll for your disposal. I went along with it for the sake of the monarchy, Mara, not because I'm a fool. I don't know what you want or why you're so bent on keeping the Awoken uneasy and dissatisfied. I don't know how you manipulate the acclamations, but when I abdicate, I am going to find Elise Lee wherever she's gone and ask her all my questions about you. I'm very interested to know the answers. You've been a wonderful queen, Mara says. No one will ever replace you. Although, she is thinking of Devnatel, who was never one of the scribes, and whose coronation would make a wonderful rebuke to the scribes' remaining ambitions. Sure, Ido meets her by the ship. We'll need a new queen, Mara tells her, leaping up the side of the ramp. Word on the satellite? Still burning for the Lagrange point. What have you done to Nuya? Given her too much perspective, I'm afraid. Just as this observatory satellite should help the Awoken see things from Mara's point of view, she smiles as she helps her bodyguard up the ramp. Jur, indulgently pretending that she needs Mara's hand. Aldrin should be on the ground in Camarina by now. We'll have a go-ahead on that interferometer buyout when he's done. There are new stars in the sky. Mara put them there. Huge distributed array telescopes orbit the distributary's cool sun. Gravity wave sensors and cold, primordial neutrino detectors spider the crust out-of-shell corporations and seed investments. She has opened her world as an enormous eye and focused it heavenward. Jor Ido was her smiling public avatar these past decades, while her brother handled enforcement. 
The days of covert speed chess in the Queen's Court are over. Jure Ido's open endorsement made Mara the face of Echeliaism, and armed Mara with blackmail over all the Jinsum scribes still in power. Yet, she has never been so lonely or so worried for the future. Mother has told her that she, Mara, uses her power over Aldrin too freely, that she must learn to stop or her mother will no longer be her friend. Mara, Shur says, catching some flickering expression. Knowing Mara well, she immediately changes tact away from comfort. What do you think we'll find with the satellite? Proof that it's time for us to go, Mara says. Proof of what I've known since the beginning. Jure frowns in thought. She doesn't remember much from before her awakening. Few of the 891 do, but enough to trouble her. Time for us to go? The ship's turbines keen up to speed, and then settle into whisper-quiet cruise. Jure reaches to strap herself in across from Mara, impulsively, hard-faced, denying she needs what she is asking for. Mara scoots aside to make room on her bench. Jure raises an eyebrow at her. Don't say anything. Mara warns her. Not a word. And so they pass the flight in silence. But not alone. Alone.